Long-term members of New Life Church will recall that this is our seventh summer preaching through Psalms. For those of you that are new, uh, we have gone up through Psalm 76, and so today we're kicking off another 10 weeks this summer with Psalm 77. So it's been nine months since we last preached on a psalm, so I kind of feel like I need to take a spiritual rototiller to our compacted minds and hearts in regards to the Psalms and to kind of till the earth, so to speak, so that we can better receive the truth of God's word as it's revealed in the Psalms. So a quick review of the background of the Psalms is important. And as a teacher, I like to do that kind of thing anyways. But I think it will be helpful not only for us to understand what's being communicated today in Psalm 77, but for the next nine Sundays as well as we continue to work through uh, the Psalms. It'll help us to uh, hopefully better appreciate and maybe even better understand uh, how this rich collection of Hebrew poetry put to music, how it communicates not only to our minds, but to our hearts. So if you're not familiar with Psalms, there are 150 of them. Essentially, it is a book of songs. In fact, it is uh, the hymn book of the nation of Israel, and they would sing through these psalms on a regular basis. We know that David wrote a lot of them. In fact, if you're not familiar, you may have thought, well, David's the author, right? He's the writer. Well, he, he wrote not quite half. He wrote 73 of the 150, but a few other characters contributed as well, like Solomon, for example, his son. He wrote a couple of psalms. Moses even wrote a psalm, Psalm 90, and then a collection of other worship leaders contributed to this, including the one we're going to look at this morning. Asaph wrote 12, and this is the one that we'll focus on, Psalm 77. But here's what I think is the most important point I want to make about the background of the Psalms. Namely, Jesus quoted the Psalms more than any other Old Testament book. That grabs my attention. Because if Jesus incorporated Psalms more than Deuteronomy, more than Isaiah, more than Exodus, then that's significant. And as he did so, he also made a point that the Psalms were actually inspired by God. He says that. And in doing so, he's letting us know that God is breathing out his truth to us through the Psalms. Therefore, I believe the Psalms should shape how we think. It should mold what our heart feels. If we listen carefully to the psalmist's struggles, and we'll see that very clearly here today in Psalm 77, then our thoughts and our emotions about God and about the life we live will, will in essence, be shaped by the truth of God. Well, every psalm teaches something about the character of God. But it also teach every psalm also teaches about the posture that we have as God's people. We live in the midst of a broken world, and we live in that tension. Being called as God's people or being called into relationship with him, yet living in a broken world. So the scope of topics within the psalms is quite expansive. And I, I really love that because there's, there's something here for everyone to uh, use a marketing mantra here, there, there's, there's just too much good stuff in, in the book of Psalms. There is praise, there is lament, which is what Psalm 77 is. 
There's thanksgiving. There's penitence. There's wisdom. There's instruction and many other topics as well. Basically, we're going to look at life issues, authentic, real life issues uh, in tension with the real world and in our relationship with God. We hear different voices within the Psalms. We hear the voice of God. We hear the voice of a psalmist speaking to God or the voice of that same psalmist speaking to God's people. Or, in this case, Asaph even speaking to his own soul. We even hear the voice of the wicked in some of the psalms, and that's quite interesting. But in every case, in every voice that we hear, there is authenticity. Sometimes brutal, shocking honesty. An example of that will be Psalm 77. As I mentioned, the psalms are Israel's songbook. Hebrew poetry put to music. And so, as a result of that, the style or the genre of literature is different. Psalms is not like narrative. And I'm going to throw out uh, narrative like the book of 1 Samuel. The reason I do that is because a number of you are listening to the teaching, the narrative of 1 Samuel. It's available on our website. If you haven't taken advantage of that, I'd highly recommend that. There are a number of people, some of whom are sitting here right now, who have been instructing us online through audio files, the narrative of 1 Samuel. But Psalms is not like that. Nor is it like uh, the book of Deuteronomy. It's not law. Nor is it like the gospel according to Matthew, like we've been studying. It's not gospel. It's not doctrinal like Romans. Uh, It's a little bit closer to the the format of, of letter writing, which much of the New Testament is, Peter Paul and others, but it, it, it is distinct, and it's important to recognize that as we continue through the next several weeks in the Psalms, is that we can't just interpret it like maybe we would interpret some of those other styles of literature. These, these songs go far beyond just a, a mental awareness of something. These songs express how we deeply feel, our thoughts, our prayers, our emotions, but at the same time, As we're doing that, these psalms also form our thoughts and our emotions and our character before God. Psalms help embed God's word into our minds and our hearts. Well, I could say a whole lot more. I'd love to say a whole lot more about the structure, about the arrangement of the psalms, because that's so interesting, but we'll have to leave that for another time in another place. Oftentimes, Uh, these psalms individually will have multiple themes. In fact, next week, I I believe here in West Lynn, Pastor Scott is going to be preaching on Psalm 78, which is a very long psalm. So it would certainly apply there. There might be multiple themes within the song or the psalm. Today, I want to point our attention to what I think is a primary teaching, or what we like to call here the big idea of Psalm 77. And here it is. When deeply distressed... Remember God's character and his actions resulting in worship for who he is and what he has done. Let me repeat that. When deeply distressed, remember God's character and his actions resulting in worship for who he is and what he has done. That, I think, is a a primary focus of this psalm. So we're going to look at it from three different perspectives. I want us to, first of all, Look at that key idea 
through the nature of Asaph's distress, the psalmist's distress. And then we're going to look at some responses that he has to that distress. And then finally, we'll look at some results. So first of all, let's look at the, the nature of his distress. And again, have your Bible at the ready here so you can see this firsthand. In those first three verses, you see a man who is feeling abandoned. He's in deep anguish. He's disappointed. He's confused. He's puzzled. He's despairing. He's perplexed. He's doubting. He's distressed. And I could go on and on and on with descriptive words. Nothing appears to be bringing him any comfort. Ever been there? Ever felt that? I'm going to ask that question more than once this morning. Because I believe Asaph is doing that. He's implying, you ever felt like that? Ever been there? He's got something to say to that. Obviously, this psalm, this song is, is, is the prayer of someone who is in deep, deep distress. You know, any person of faith, especially those of us who profess faith and belief in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when, when we experience this kind of deepening darkness, this uh, enveloping hopelessness, we can be profoundly thankful for the frankness, the candor of Asaph. He is a fellow sufferer, and he's going to show us a path through our suffering. In fact, uh, the commentator James Boyce, in writing on this psalm, said this about Asaph. One thing you have to say about Asaph, he tells it like it is. He's respectful, but if he's unhappy or puzzled about what God is doing or not doing, he says so. And we'll see he says so here in Psalm 77. Well, who is Asaph? Take just half a minute to, to call this to our attention. I think it's important. Scripture tells us that he headed the service of uh, music, worship music, during the reigns of King David and then his son, King Solomon. So he was appointed first by David and then also retained by Solomon as the head of music in the worship. Asaph, though, is also referred to as a prophet in Scripture, as a poet. In fact, he's first mentioned in the Bible when King David instructs him and others to bring the Ark of the Covenant from someone's home where it had been for many years into Jerusalem. And Asaph helps to lead that train of, of priests and others who are bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. His writing style is distinctive, it's forceful, it's deeply spiritual. Plus, <laughs> I love this, Scripture indicates that he has a special affinity for symbols. You know, we used to have a bandbox up here, and at that point I would go back there and probably crash some symbols. For whatever reason, Asaph led the symbol crashing. Verses 1 through 3 start out less than positive. But in a sense, as you read that, his crying out loud, his day of trouble, his outstretched hands, as you read that, he's, he's allowing us into his personal space. Asaph is allowing us, uh, he's pulling the curtain back, so to speak, and allowing us to, to feel along with him. He's revealing the depths of his emotions and his struggles with God. And in doing so, Psalm 77 provides the language, the permission, and the exhortation to lament. 
to join Asaph. He's giving us language whereby we can address God just as he himself is doing. He's giving us permission to do that and he's urging us, exhorting us to do that. You'll notice at the very beginning when I read this, it says it's to the choir master. So not only is Asaph letting us into his personal space, but he's also saying this needs to be sung in the congregation of the people. This needs to be, this struggle needs to be put to music and it needs to be sung. It needs to be reflected within the congregation. And so we're invited into this along with him. One other point I want to make about uh, sort of the structure here, and we'll see this in future psalms as well, is the use of this little term, selah, or selah, or as I learned growing up as a kid in Sunday school, selah. In either case, let me give you a definition of that. It appears three times. It appears at the end of verse 3, at the end of verse 19, and then again at the end of verse 15. That term, selah, occurs 71 times in the Psalms, which is significant. And it would be important for us to understand what that word means. And it also appears three times in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3. Here's what I think it means. It's probably a, a signal for a musical interlude. When you would hear or see on a written page or on a scroll, Selah, that's the sign for the singers to stop singing while the musicians continue playing, probably softly. Why? So that the audience can stop, can pause, and ponder the words. Well, you know, what I find interesting here is that Believers in Jesus, Christians, we have a lot to be thankful for, right? We, we, we receive Jesus into our life, and he secures our future destiny. He punches a ticket, so to speak, entrance to heaven. But it's much more than that. We were learning through our study of the gospel according to Matthew. It's much more than that. He calls us into kingdom living. He calls us into daily, progressively moving forward and growing in our sanctification of being set apart for his unique purposes. But he also is, is pointing out here, Asaph is, is that while that's happening, Christians are not immune to despair. We're not immune to doubt. We're not immune to the kinds of emotions that Asaph is feeling. And I know that. I know that there are people who have walked in here this morning or there are people who are watching us online right now who are listening to this and going, you don't know where I'm at. I, I, what are you talking about? You know, I'm just, I'm up to here with all these issues and problems and so forth. And my, my response to that is, Asaph knows what we're talking about. I've experienced that. You've experienced that. And it's real. And the point I want us to get here is that Asaph is... is responding in a very real way to real life issues and in a sense he's saying to us this morning selah stop hit pause ponder what he's about to tell us which leads us to his response i don't want to just camp out there with the distress right we want to move on a little bit and see if we can glean some ideas from him but as I talk about his response, let me say this as a disclaimer out at the very beginning. Too many pastors, too many preachers want to somehow take a passage like this and come up with some sort of a quick fix formula for fixing things. 
I like to fix things. But Asaph is saying, this, I don't feel like this can be fixed. Yet he plows forward and he, he shares from the depth of his, of his emotions. This, this, his response that we're simply going to be observing. We're going to be observing his response and hopefully gleaning some ideas from that. But his response is not a formula for success. In fact, in just a few minutes, we'll see he ends this psalm very abruptly. And I think there's reasons for him doing that. But here are some things that he does as we observe his response. The first thing we notice in the first couple of verses is that he prays. The text says, I cry aloud to God. And in case we didn't hear it the first time, aloud to God. (laughs) And whenever there's a repetition in Scripture, it's there to make a point. He's not just praying, praying quietly. No, he is crying out to God, aloud to God. He is, Asaph says, is seeking And that's a really active term there. He's seeking the Lord or Yahweh or the God of the covenant in his day of trouble to the point that he's also just in the night, he says, I'm stretching out my hands and I'm just crying out to God and I'm doing it without wearying. So there's persistence in his prayer as well. Ever been there? Ever experienced that? I have. Too many times that I care to talk about, too often. Or I've been with folks who I've observed that very same thing. The anguish is deep, it's insufferable, it's, it's like there's no way out. And Asaph is saying, that's what you do. You pray, and you persist, and you cry out to God. And as you do that, his second response is this, you remember, verses three through six. In fact, in Verse 3, verse 6, and two times in verse 11, he uses this term, remember. Remember. Well, what's he remembering? Well, let's look at it here. It appears at first glance that Asaph has has hit rock bottom or is about to, and so that even the very thought of God is starting to trouble him. He doesn't know what God is doing in his experience. He can't explain it. He's puzzled by what's happening uh, in his life. He feels far from God distant from God, almost as if the Lord is against him as his adversary. So the very thought of God, he says, troubles him. That is oh so good, because we can identify with that. There are times when even the recollection of how God has helped us in the past does not alleviate how we're feeling right now, the pangs of suffering that we are struggling with right now. Again, have you ever been there? Selah. Hit pause. Think about that. And then a curious thing occurs in verse 4. He addresses God for the first time and he says, you hold my eyelids open. (laughs) That makes it worse. It's like, God, I just want to take a nap. I want to go to sleep. I want to forget about my problems. Leave me alone. And it's like God says, no. In fact, literally, it's it's hold, hold snap open and hold the eyelids up. It's like, are you kidding me? But this is the real struggle that goes on. And, I, and again, it's a real struggle that we can identify with. Asaph is giving us real, raw emotions that we can identify with. As a result of this, he says at the end of verse 6, then my spirit made a diligent search. 
So this prayer, this remembering of what uh, God has done in the past leads him to a search. And his search ends up with six questions. Uh, And this is where it gets really dicey. Each one of these questions questions the character of God. In fact, to the point that it almost feels blasphemous. Look at these, verses 7 through 9. Will the Lord spurn forever? In other words, has he rejected me? Will the Lord never again be favorable? Will he never again show favor to me, show his grace, his mercy to me? Has his steadfast love? Brothers and sisters, that's the kind of love you heard it before, the hesed love, the covenant love. Uh, the NASB calls it loving kindness. It, it's that, it's that re- relational covenant love that God has for his people. Has it forever ceased? You could say, has his unfailing covenant love, has it failed? Has the unfailing failed? Are his promises at an end for all time? Have his promises failed as well? Has God forgotten to be gracious? And the sense of what he's asking there is, has God forgotten how to be gracious to me? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? In other words, is he so angry with me that, and then he finishes his statement, In total, what he's asking here is this. Has our unchanging God, has he changed? In fact, it's fascinating. If you look at verse 10, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the ears of the right hand of the Most High. I I take it as that's a good translation of that original. But many other versions of Scripture take it differently. Listen to the words of the NASB. Then I said, it is my grief. Think deep deep pain. It is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. That's like the ultimate question of blasphemy. God, you say you are this, but have you actually become that? This is real stuff. Can you identify with that? I know I can. And that's what I love about this psalm, is that it's it's real. He He's not giving us a formula for fixing something necessarily, but he's showing us a path through the reality of of how we're living, what we're facing. And then in verses 10 through 12, in case we didn't uh, get the remember part earlier in in this uh, psalm, he says it again, remember. This time, specifically remember the historic actions that God has has done for his people and in our case specifically us remember what god has done for us and what i think is happening here it's fascinating what asaph is doing is he's remembering what god has done in order to know him better he's flipped the script sometimes we think i gotta get to know god better if i just knew god better then i could remember him more and asaph is saying no 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 Start with remembering. Remember what God has done, how he's revealed himself in creation, in redemption, throughout the history of Israel, throughout the history of our lives. Remember what he's done in order to know him better. You know what? This is a form of confession. The New Testament concept of confession, probably best expressed in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is, you could, you could finish it for me, faithful and just to forgive us our sins, right? 
And the term there literally means to say the same thing or to agree with God concerning our sin. And that's normally what we think about when we talk about confession. We think about its relationship to our sin, and that's a really good starting point. But it's more than that. Asaph is confessing. He is saying the same thing about God and about his situation, his predicament that God says about it. It's aligning our thoughts with God's thoughts. That's what confession is here. And then as a result of that, notice what he does. He repeats four times, plus there's a fifth implied time, I will, I will do this, I will remember, I will do that. All of which, it, it indicates a, a volitional choice on his behalf. He's, he's come to a place of decision, he's come to a place of determination, and he's making an intentional choice to remember. So, again, his responses as we observe them are, is to pray, to remember, to not be afraid to question. You know what? I told Deb the other day, God, God we talk about this a lot, God's not intimidated by my questions. <laughs> Think about that. I think sometimes we feel that way. Oh, I, can't, I can't ask, oh, this is going to intimidate God, really? Nothing I do or say or question is going to intimidate God. He can handle my questions, right? And Asaph is saying, let him do that. Let him do that. Question. But as you question, continue to remember. Because what happens then is transformation occurs. Transformation occurs as a result of the actions of God described in verses 10 through 12 as he is appealing to the right hand of God, as he's remembering, remembering, pondering, and meditating, transformation begins to occur. It's not a formula, but it is a response. It is an action. Interestingly enough, I asked Eric to read as the call to worship this morning, Psalm 103, verses 8 through 13. You saw it on the screen. I've also asked him to read that as the benediction as well. And the reason for that is, is because in that psalm, and we'll see it again in a minute, in that psalm, David is answering Asaph's questions. I can't help but wonder if, because Asaph worked for David. David had appointed him director of all the music and worship. And so Asaph is struggling here, and he's pouring out his heart before God, and he's asking some really hard questions and a little bit later on, David actually answers them. It's a beautiful benediction. Well, this leads to some results. Just very quickly, and, but very pointedly, I want to uh, mention a couple of things. The first is this, that there's a, there's a tremendous change that occurs in the middle of, of Psalm 77. There's a pivot point here. The first 12 verses, or at least through the middle of the, of the 12th verse, so 1 to 12a, there are 25 first-person pronouns that are used. Pronouns like I, me, and my. And then halfway through verse 12 and running to the end of the chapter, verse 20, there are 19 times when a second person pronoun is used. You, your. Do you see the change? Do you see the shift? It's gone from 
oh, woe is me, this is my situation. It's all, because it's all about me, right? It's all about me, myself, and I. It changes to, no, I'm going to focus on you, God, and what you've done. That begs the question, do we view God through the lens of our current circumstances? You know, there's a, that little um, chorus that was some many, many years ago. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Well, and, until my circumstances take a turn for the worse, right? The, the point that Asaph, I think, is making here is that, or, or should we, do we deal with our circumstances by viewing them through the character and actions of God? That's what he's doing. That's the shift that has occurred here. And so in verses 13 through 15, uh, he gives five responses to the questions that he has already asked, these questions of God. And it's almost like staccato-like. They're one right after the other one. And they are, they're affirmations that result. Uh, he's, he's beginning to understand the character of God because it's been, his character is reflected in his actions. And the one that I want to point out in particular, there's several, but I'm just going to point out one. It's in verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? And for the life of me, preparing for this message, reading through that multiple times over and over and over again, I was thinking verse 13 is all about God is holy. Well, that's true, but that's not what he's talking about. What he's calling holy is God's way, God's way, the way that God's, God works. In other words, God has a holy, let's define that term, the Old Testament word holy is similar to the New Testament word sanctify. It, it literally means to set apart for a unique purpose. So what Asaph is basically saying here is that God has a specific, unique, set-apart plan and that plan is above my circumstances. It's around my circumstances. You remember Isaiah 55? Isaiah says, he quotes God and says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God has a plan. It's holy it's special, it's unique, and it's probably unlike anything I could ever come up with. Well, this leads to a, a, a close, an unusual close of this psalm from verses 16 through 20, where he uses a double metaphor, a, a, what I call a combo metaphor. He begins by talking, I believe, about creation and about the bigness and, and the wildness and there's lightning and there's thunder and there's water pouring out and, it's, it's, and the earth is trembling and shaking. But then he, he moves into, in the last two verses, into a, a beautiful metaphor of the Exodus. That great event when God redeemed his people out of slavery. And he's illustrating the point of what he's trying to say through this psalm. He's trying to remind his audience of this greatest work of redemption that God had done on their behalf. Look at 19 and 20 again. Your way, this holy way, was through the sea. Notice it's not around the sea, it's through the sea. Your path through the great waters. 
yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. It's a beautiful picture of, of the exodus and, and, and of redemption. Well, basically, what is, is kind of unseen here, unclear here in the Old Testament, and the Israelites would, would, would not quite understand what went on here, becomes crystal clear as we look at God's way today, as we look at the path that Jesus took to the cross on our behalf and redeemed us from our slavery to sin. And then Asaph stops. He stops the psalm somewhat abruptly, and it's kind of strange, actually. And so I'm left with the questions. Is he, is he stopping here because his confusion, his despair, his doubt are suddenly forgotten at the remembrance of God's great act of redemption, the Exodus? It could be. He could be, he could be concluding if, if God can shepherd his people through the Red Sea, redeeming them out of slavery in Egypt, then God can certainly shepherd me out of the pit of distress and despair. Well, how about us? How about us? When we remember and deeply reflect upon God's greatest work of redemption, not just the Exodus, but his redemption through the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, does our confusion, does our despair, does our doubt fade by comparison? It's still there. The stuff is still there. But our attention is drawn somewhere else. Think about that. I really want you to hit pause, Selah, and think deeply about that. If God has the power to redeem you and me from our sin and to give us a hope of eternity with him, then do you suppose he has the power to lead us through what we're going through right now? It doesn't diminish what we're going through right now. But our attention is shifted to the fact that he's in control. And he can guide us through that. For those of you that have been worshiping regularly, you know that just last Sunday we concluded a 50-day emphasis on our delighting together in the gospel. And I want to say this morning, let's not stop doing that. Let's not stop delighting in the gospel. But let's continue to delight in Jesus. And we can do that by praying this very real, real prayer from Asaph. I came across a a prayer this week that is a really good starting point. It's in the, the Valley of Vision. You might be familiar with this prayer book. Uh, it's a collection of Puritan prayers. And so that's, uh, by the way, a really good place to start in our prayer life. But it's also a really good place to end this sermon. So instead of just saying, let's pray, and I pray, let's pray, and let me read this prayer. O Thou Most High, creator of the ends of the earth, governor of the universe, judge of all men, head of the church, savior of sinners. Thy greatness is unsearchable, thy goodness infinite, thy compassions unfailing, thy providence boundless, thy mercies ever new. We bless thee for the words of salvation. How important, suitable, encouraging are the doctrines, promises, 
and invitations of the gospel of peace. We are lost, but in it thou hast presented to us a full, free, and eternal salvation. We are weak, but here we learn that help is found in one that is mighty. We are poor, but in him we discover unsearchable riches. We are blind, but we find he has treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We thank thee for thy unspeakable gift. Thy son is our only refuge, foundation, hope, confidence. We depend upon his death, rest in his righteousness, desire to bear his image. May his glory fill our minds, his love reign in our affections, his cross inflame us with ardor. Let us as Christians fill our various situations in life, escape the snares to which they expose us, discharge, discharge the duties that arise from our circumstances, enjoy with moderation their advantages, improve with diligence their usefulness, and may every place and company we are in be benefited by us.